What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us today on China Corner Office, a podcast powered by SubChina, the New York-based news and information platform that helps the West read China between the lines. I'm Chris Marquis, a professor at the Cambridge Judge Business School. And today we are joined by Art Dicker, a senior attorney at R&P China Lawyers, a full-service local PRC law firm that advises multinational businesses in China. Currently based in Shanghai, Art has spent the last 15 years working in China advising technology, manufacturing, and consumer companies on structuring their investments and managing legal risk in their China operations. I got to know about Art's work through his LinkedIn newsletter on China tech law. I'll link to the newsletter in the show notes and recommend you take a look. One of the things I really appreciate about Art's writing is that he takes on some very complex topics and breaks them down in both a thorough and clear and understandable way. In the podcast, we discuss some of these areas, such as how companies are dealing with China's new data regulations, the VIE, or Variable Interest Entity Structure, that Chinese companies use to go public in the U.S., and also how the laws governing the VC sector in China have evolved over time. We also discuss what got Art interested in law in China, his interesting career path, and a number of other more general trends in the China corporate law area. Thanks so much for listening and enjoy the show. Art, welcome to China Corner Office. Thanks, Chris. Great to be here. Yeah, really looking forward to digging into some of the legal issues you've been addressing. Been reading your newsletter quite enthusiastically on LinkedIn over the past number of months. We'll definitely link to that in the show notes. I guess the first question is just a little bit of background. I mean, you've been a lawyer in China for 15 years now. What motivated you to be on this path? Yeah, well, I'll try to keep it short because it can go back pretty far. I studied Chinese in university at Princeton. I kind of studied politics, international politics. And then the language, and then it actually was triggered from a book I read in high school based on a video game. Romance of the Three Kingdoms is one of the、oh. more classical Chinese novels, and I was this nerdy kid that played the strategy video game, role-playing game, and found out there was a book behind it. So I had that interest in the language and the culture, and then, like a lot of people that go to law school, didn't know what I wanted to do, so I went to law school, and then just combined it all after that. After a couple years in New York, I went to、uh, Beijing and worked at a U.S. firm's office there. 
and then went in-house to a U.S. software company that got me down to Shanghai. And I've been here since and now back at a, a law firm again. Great. I know a lot of content in the newsletters is around sort of the high-tech ecosystem, VC ecosystem, and we'll dig into some of those questions. But now it sort of makes sense that you spent some time actually in-house at a software firm. Yeah. Valuable experience. I use it every day. Can you say a little bit about the firm that you work at now and what type of cases and clients you have? Sure. The firm is called RNP China Lawyers. We've got about 50 lawyers on the team. We're a local firm, actually, but we focus exclusively on foreign clients doing business in China. So everything in that sense is more or less cross-border investments, transactions, and other things. So we're a full-service firm. Uh, I'll try not to do too much of a pitch here. Um, we are, <laughs> it's nice. I mean, because I used to be at uh, Morrison Forrester, which is a fantastic global law firm based out of San Francisco. But we always had a small office in Beijing and small office in Shanghai and didn't have quite the full breadth of that a local firm can do. So even though I love the guys at MoFo, it's a unique, a different uh, setting to be at now. So local firm. So this is Chinese native firm, Shanghai based. Is So the attorneys, are they mostly Chinese? Are they a variety of expats in Chinese? Mostly Chinese. Yeah, mostly Chinese. Um, and then we have a few of us foreigners who do manage projects. And we really take care of the client relationships, make sure the communications are smooth. We put ourselves in the shoes of those clients. And that's where that's what I mentioned being in-house before really helps out to know what the, what the general counsel is thinking. And the clients, are they mostly domestic Chinese firms? Are they international firms wanting to access the China market? How, how does that break down and the types of services you give to different types of clients? Yeah, they're almost entirely international firms, American and European, doing business in, in China. So there's a variety. We have retail clients, we have industrial, and my focus tends to be a little bit more on tech from, my, from all those years that, that we mentioned before uh, in-house and, and then at Morrison Forrester before that. Great. I mean, you've obviously worked at a different number of different contexts from international firm, in-house, now local firm. Through that time, you know, what sort of trends have you seen? I, I think this is a time where actually the formalization of law, corporate law in China has really made a lot of progress. Is that right? Yeah, I think there's a, a kind of a convergence going on. So and it's always been there. And I think it's gone the fastest on the commercial sides. So that's, that's to say contracts law incorporations of, of entities, cross-border licensing agreements, distribution agreements, M&A. So the big trend I see is the convergence of the rules in China, both the kind of on the regulatory side, uh, as far as how industries are regulated, and then on the commercial side, uh, how transactions happen. I see all the rules kind of converging to international standards, right? So on the commercial side, I think that's one of the trends that's gone the fastest. That is to say, uh, an M&A deal is in China is very similar to an M&A deal outside of China. A licensing deal in China is very similar to one outside of China or cross-border. And of course, in commercial law transactions, you can pick the governing law if it's cross-border. And there's no politics really in commercial deals or anything like that. There's a little bit more policy things that go on in regulatory, like regulating different industries. Right. So I think that's why commercials, there's that convergence the fastest. And even in regulatory, as we'll get into probably data privacy, right? That's following on the footsteps of, of GDPR. China does look to other regulatory re regimes outside of China as models. And so I think that's the big trend I've seen over the 15 years I've been here. 
Really interesting. And how about the population of internationally focused lawyers? Is that becoming more and more Chinese then as things converge and so less of the expat lawyer? Yeah. So us expat lawyers are certainly a dying breed here. That's for sure. I remember when I was at Morrison Forster, I was working, that was late 2000s. And it's a bit of an exaggeration to say you could say ni hao and get a graduate from a good law school have a year or two of experience in a big city in the U.S. and come here and get whatever job you want. But it was definitely easier back then. You could see over the few years and then pass through the financial crisis in 2008, that started to change. And so the story is, you know, I remember we were doing agreements for a major sports organization and their business in China. And the associate that was working underneath me at the time, he's Chinese. He never lived in the U.S., never studied in the U.S., and I said, hey, you know, you know, Wang Yan, why don't you try and take a first cut at these agreements? Let's just see. And the partner's like, yeah, look, give him a chance. See what he can do. He drafted perfect documents almost. And I just said, Wang Yan, you just made me obsolete. But that's where you could see the writing on the wall. The Chinese lawyers were, especially the, the ones that were going abroad, getting their degrees in the U.S., first the masters, and then they more and more started getting JDs in the U.S. and coming back to China. And they're Chinese, and they can draft very, very well. Now, one thing I, we do have an advantage as international lawyers here is that still, I think, like I mentioned, on the communication side and on the cultural, so many of these things are just as much about cultural translation as they are about translating, interpreting the actual rules or figuring out what rule. It's interpretation, it's explaining it in a context of rules that the U.S. client is familiar with in the U.S. and helping them compare it to that to help them get wrap their head around it. So that's where the value still is for folks like me. Yeah, it makes sense. It's sort of a bridge to connect those two different systems. How about the legal education infrastructure in China then? You mentioned particularly folks that have an, a JD or maybe like an LLM or something. They are sort of definitely in demand. But how about all the big schools like Beida have a law school? How is the training there as far as a route into international law? Yeah, those are definitely the best universities. The legal training there is excellent. I mean, I'm sure in a lot of ways, it's just as good I mean, substantively as, as any universities around the world. I will say one thing, going through three years of a JD in the U.S., when it went through it, a lot of people, a lot of lawyers go through this, law students go through this and just think of this is such a waste of time. You know, by the you learn all the real core substance in the first year. The second year, you can start to take a few classes that you might find interesting. By the third year, you're just like, get me the hell out of here. You're already ready to go in, in a lot of ways and you just take the bar exam. But I really, after all these years, appreciate the the teaching style of law school because it's the Socratic method and it teaches the case method of learning. You actually cram for the bar exam with these Barbary classes and so paid classes where you actually learn what you're supposed to learn all that time. But the theory actually really helps you later on in life in your career. It teaches you how to think. And so I never appreciated that at the time, but I definitely appreciate that now. The analytical skills that law school teaches you, it really does pay off. And I think that's probably still where there's a difference between American law schools, for example, with that three-year JD program and what you might get as an undergraduate here at Beida. Oh, got it, right. Because the law degree yeah. is an undergraduate degree. Well, you can get a master's as well, but you can take the bar exam after an undergraduate here. How about the different types of industries that you're working with? And we touched a little bit on tech. Is there other financial services, healthcare? What are some of the international industries that are really represented among your clients? So when I was at Morrison Forster, that was the time when a lot of big American technology companies were coming over. So we worked for, for Dell and Apple and UPS and some other 
major you know conglomerate companies. And then when I went in-house to Cadence, I started to focus more and more on software. Because Cadence is an electronic design automation software company. It's the software that you use to, it's like computer-aided design software to design semiconductor chips. After that experience of six years um, as Asia-Pac general counsel, I became a software guy as my kind of my core legal technical experience. And then what I've noticed in the last few years, and my clients are more and more fall in this area, is software as a service, SaaS, cloud-based um, companies. And those companies, uh, there's definitely a, a slowdown in a lot of sectors in foreign investment here in China. But for companies which are asset light software companies operating over a cloud, there's not been any slowdown at all. So, the, so my clients are increasingly those clients, enterprise software companies, where China software companies are great at B2C, consumer applications and so forth, Tencent, Alibaba and the like. There's still a lack of in the ecosystem here is these kind of niche enterprise software companies that do a very specific thing. You know, managing a certain kind of data, like agricultural data, or managing cybersecurity, or something like that, or supply chain management. We see these boring companies that no one's ever heard of, running purely on the cloud, coming over to China still, and not slowing down at all. Interesting. The cloud really makes me think about some of the data privacy regulations that have been in the news a lot recently. We'd love to discuss those a little bit. And you mentioned that they're becoming more international, maybe more like GDPR. I recently interviewed some folks who had done a report on data privacy for the U.S.-China Business Council, and there was this really evocative phrase in there, in China, for China, data islands, they described, because of the portability of data. If you're collecting data on China, they want to stay in China and not actually be able to, to move around to other data centers or other areas of the cloud, I guess. So could you talk a little bit about the, these new data regulations and how they're affecting the clients that you work with? Sure, absolutely. Yeah, it's a fascinating topic, and it's the biggest topic over the last year, for sure. There is a lot of moving parts. The, the big thing that, that, that does stick out in people's mind is that local storage requirement. Is it really a hard requirement? If you read the rules, it's not a hard requirement. But when you get into the weeds a bit, some of the practical difficulties of complying with all the other requirements of the data privacy rules that came out last year. For example, you need to be able to correct the data if a user requests it. You need to be able to find it then. You need to be able to filter data which is national security related or not national security related, whether it's called important data or not, which is not a well-defined term in the law. Or you need to potentially go under security review if you're exporting data, right? So these things, no one really knows yet how it's going to be enforced. So people are naturally taking a cautious approach at first to keep the data here if it's easy enough to do. Mm -hmm. Now, there's some companies which have their analytical software or their algorithms running at headquarters, right, on their in their big IT infrastructure. So for some people, they're still going to want to get the data out. And maybe they have to anonymize it or whatnot. But And that's a whole other way of people are, are trying to think about this. How do I still get valuable data out at a, that I can use at a macro analytical level, but maybe strip out some of the personal information that's problematic. God, that makes a lot of sense. That works under the provisions of the law. If it's anonymized, that can still be used outside of China. Yeah, generally, yes. I mean, for personal information. So there's personal information, which, which is really about the personal information protection law, which came out in November. And if you're anonymizing it, you're, you're basically there. I mean, if you're keeping the your local copy there, you can you can fix it if, again, if the user 
request that you make corrections or, or take it off. Um, so, so that's a win-win where local team can still have the information managed and then maybe the headquarters can have kind of the anonymized data that they're just looking for. And then you've got the non-personal information, which is not usually an issue unless it starts to get into these kind of national security concerns, critical information infrastructure data that is could touch on financial macro data, energy, these kinds of things, which are kind of on the periphery of national security or macroeconomic policy. Then you have to evaluate it. Is this data which I need to keep here or can't or cannot easily export because it has national security implications? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, how I think when things are still in a little bit of an uncertain environment, companies are really being very cautious. I'm not sure if this exactly connects into these regulations, but I know that there's been things in the press about actually data issues was one reason why the DD IPO was potentially problematic. Tesla has been in the news about having to have its data reside in China. So that, to me, data of cars driving around. Yeah, location data, yeah. That that doesn't seem to me like it should be national security, but it, but people are still being a little bit conservative on that, or am I seeing it the wrong way? Well, th- that's locational data, right, potentially, right? You're talking about where people are going, which, which if you think about it, it very definitely could be <laughs> useful information to some people. So, right. But also, I think in aggregate, you're, you're getting into infrastructure usage, because those, those are almost infrastructure tools in and of themselves, especially if you're talking about DD. DD, I think, is also about the personal information there on location and other things. So I think also Didi was just a bit cavalier about how they went about kind of full speed ahead and not paying enough deference to the regulators. And that's usually a recipe for disaster. Speaking of Didi and companies from China going public, you know, there's a lot of discussion about the VIE structure, variable interest entity. And, you know, because some of the companies going public, maybe all of them, I'm not sure, actually are structured in that way. It's a, it's a structure that's been around, I learned from your newsletters, a very, very long time, like 20 years. This is not a new thing, certainly, although certainly in the press a lot more. Can you say a little bit about what that structure is and how it actually helps companies from China go public or operate internationally? Sure, I'll try and be concise, but a lot to unpack there. So for most companies, most it starts with the license that you need as an internet business. So internet business broadly defined as, you know, e-commerce, even anything that's value-added telecom service, you know, so, so something that is using the internet where the business is primarily running on the internet, and that could be mobile internet as well. So these things are regulated and in need a value-added telecom services license. One of the most common ones is the ICP license, Internet Content Provider License. So a lot of these tech companies that list on NASDAQ need an ICP license to run their core business. So the JDs and so forth, like that. Maybe, maybe it could be EDI, but something similar to that. Right. And these businesses, if they want to raise money from foreign investors and eventually list on NASDAQ or wherever, they are restricted. So to get this license, you cannot be foreign invested. You have to be a local company. So therefore, they created 20 years ago, you're right, they created this elaborate structure where the offshore company that's going to go IPO doesn't actually own the operating company that holds this key license in China. But it's connected through this roundabout way with contracts that lock up the shareholders, which is often the founder of the company, and locks up the the revenue, the after-tax profit of the business. Through these contracts, the auditors will sign off 
that this is like a group company, even though it's not an actual subsidiary, it's so locked up, it's as if it's a subsidiary of the group. So that's was this, leave it to some lawyers 20 years ago to bang heads with investment bankers and accountants to figure something out so ingenious like this. I can appreciate it for sure. But everyone else outside of China is like, what is this thing, right? It's, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. And it's just this peculiarity of the fact that internet businesses are regulated, need a specific license, and that license cannot be held by a company that takes foreign investment. And then so the shareholders on NASDAQ or New York Stock Exchange, so they actually basically own shares in this entity that has contracts for the revenue of the underlying asset. Yeah, and it's funny because once in a while you get one of these analysts point out that, hey, look right here in the risk factor. You know, hey, they don't actually own the company that has all the value. (laughs) And I just kind of laugh at that. Of course, everybody out here laughs at that because we're like, duh. Right. You're like, um, yeah, so that that's the age old question. And when people we all go back and forth about that, will they ever really crack down on this? It is a bit of like a guillotine thing, right? Like it's a tentative relationship. It's never really been enforced. Those kinds of contracts. There are cases. The most infamous one is Alipay, the Jack Ma, SoftBank, Yahoo kind of falling out. Right. And that was over the, the fact that these Jack Ma was saying that these VIE contracts are not really allowed for this industry anymore. So there's always that threat that, or a founder goes rogue, right? Says, I don't know what these, honor these contracts and good luck enforcing them. But in the vast, vast majority of cases, especially where you have the founder sitting at the, that local operating company as a PRC national and at the offshore structure, he's got aligned incentives to make everything work. Most companies that list on NASDAQ are in that situation. So it is still a relatively safe structure, all things considered. Right. Yeah, you gave the example, maybe it might be interesting to talk about a little bit of Meituan Dianping, yeah. which I thought was helpful in, in really elaborating how this works. Yeah, so the founder of Meituan Dianping, he actually, what you can look right there, Wang Xing is listed there as the, the shareholder, one of the two primary shareholders of the operating company. And then he's also 30 something percent, 20, 30 percent owner at the offshore company that's going public. Right. He's not going to do anything foolish down here to rock the boat. He's not going to take the company and run away with his buddy because he's got so much incentive to cash out, you know, maybe slowly over time at the list code level. So those are the perfect situations where the incentives are aligned. So foreign companies, sometimes we always have to present this as an option, even though we don't necessarily endorse it too much of if you've got, if you're more of a strategic investor, you're a multinational company, and maybe you know you have to get this license. So you look to what these Chinese companies have done and say, well, can I do a structure like that, a VIE structure? And there it's a bit different because you're really going to struggle with that aligning of incentives, right? Like Wang Xing and, and Meituan, Tianping had. You're not going to have that natural guy who's going to have so much equity up here and so much equity down here that it all works, right? Yeah. And I can imagine for these Chinese nationals, I mean, this is a great way to get liquid currency in, in some ways if they are going to sell over time. I mean, you know, there's so much difficulty transferring money in and out of China, maybe not into China, but tra- traveling out of China. But this is, you know, you can see how the incentives really align because it gives them this big pot of money outside of China. There's probably some of that. I, I think the primary thing is when these tech companies were going public in starting you know, in the 2000s, they needed to go public in a place that was receptive to companies with that weren't profitable yet, right? And where do you go? Right. NASDAQ, which was where all of the dot-com companies went, you know, a decade before. The capital markets weren't mature enough here and not flexible enough 
And I think there was still, you know, the requirement you needed to be profitable for three years, and none of these companies were. And then Hong Kong, similarly. And, and it's, the U.S. has a big pool, right? Of course, the capital markets are bigger there. And then the venture capital ecosystem was slow to develop here. So you had the Sequoias and the Kleiner Perkins coming over here in the late 2000s and didn't have an, there was no local VC industry, right? So you almost, and those guys are gonna want you to structure for an IPO in NASDAQ. That's the ducks all aligned to have this uh, elaborate structure. Yeah, it makes sense. So I'd like to hear a little bit about the VC infrastructure that you just mentioned. I know that's another topic that you've written a bit about. So can you say particularly in regards to the law, how the VC infrastructure has developed? Sure. I think in the beginning, because 20 years ago or, or, or more, there was no experience here of venture capital. There was no starting point. So the starting point became a lot of these folks from Silicon Valley coming over here. And that's when I started. You know, Morrison Forrester has a big venture capital practice. I was immediately thrown onto those kinds of deals when I came over here as a young associate. And that time, the term sheets, the basic terms that would go into these deals were definitely borrowed from Silicon Valley templates. So that was a pretty easy kind of handover. But one thing that definitely was different was there were still some of the old kind of draconian provisions from back in the day in Silicon Valley, which were already kind of on their way out. Like we definitely don't have time to explain all this, but there's this provision called full ratchet, which is a huge kind of a penalty term for when there's a down round in a venture capital financing. And it's so draconian, like it's just, you don't even see it anymore in the US, as far as I know. Of course, I've been here 15 years, so maybe I don't know anymore about the US. But you still see the, kind of these outliers like that. Someone from Silicon Valley would be scratching their head like, wow, you still can get that in a term sheet in there. But I think that's also, a, going back to this idea of convergence, I think that that's also on its way out here too. People realize that, come on, this is just not fair to founders and so forth. So I think founders have become incredibly sophisticated here, like their cousins in Silicon Valley. And so I think a lot of that, those kind of shenanigans are, are no longer apply. Yeah, that makes sense. I don't follow the VC industry particularly closely, but I do know, for instance, Sequoia is the famous example. I mean, they've grown in China, actually, I think more than anywhere else. And Neil Shen yeah, is the gold standard, you know, one of the top people yeah. globally. Yeah. This has been super interesting and I don't want to take up too much of your time. So I just have one final question. Looking forward in the next couple of years, as you're advising foreign companies entering China, what are the few pieces of advice you'd say, okay, here are the things that should be top of mind as you enter China from a legal perspective? I think a lot of people get hung up on the fact that it's complicated. That's where we come in. That's our role is to explain it's complicated, but in many cases, it's doable. Where there's a will, there's a way. You can look at the data regulations. You can look at these things like VIE structures. You can look at how long it takes to set up a company here versus the U.S. All these things are improving. And at the same time, they're never as bad as you hear about in the horror stories. So I think the thing, key thing to think about is, one, it is complicated but doable. And two, you don't have to be perfect. Whereas in the US, I think there's a focus on very defined terms and regulations. You have so much legislative history and judicial decisions interpreting how things, there's, there's so much clarity. And here that just doesn't exist. And to be honest, that's what makes the job fun too, is to try and fill in those gaps with the experience. You're not going to find a regulation or an interpretation of it anywhere. You just have to know how it works on the ground. And so that's where we come in. What I always say is you need a story. So the regulators in industries which are more regulated, they're not actively looking to shut 
businesses down. They're not picking on foreign companies. They're still very welcoming of foreign investment here, especially if it's an industry that they're trying to develop. And you just need to have an argument if you're ever challenged by the regulators that this is what we're trying to do. This is the structure we have. These are the rules that we looked at. This is our logic. And if you disagree with us, we'll try and fix it. And they will give you a chance to fix it. So I think the point is that it can seem overwhelming at first, but it's if you have patience and perseverance, you can make it through. And, and of course, there's a big market here. There's a reason why companies still come here after all of these headaches and after all of these trade wars and after all of these things going on, right? Yeah, great. Well, that's a good way to end. I mean, I know there are a lot of trade tensions between the West and China, but I've been hearing from all the business I talk to, there's still lots of opportunity. And so this is very consistent with that. So thanks so much for joining us today on China Corner Office Art. Yeah, thanks, Chris, for having me. Really appreciate it.